O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase in us all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome back. Uh, we are working our way through uh, the parables of Jesus. Uh, this is the second one we're going to look at today. Last week we took a look at the parable of the sower, or is it sometimes referred to the parable of the four soils? Because as we saw last week, really the focus is not so much on the ability of the sower, or even for that matter, the power of the seed. Rather, the emphasis was on the fertile nature of the soil, and the soil, of course, represented our human hearts. Well, today we're going to look at another one of those familiar parables, uh, perhaps even more familiar. Some might go so far as to say the most familiar of all the parables, and that is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open them, please, to Luke chapter 10, and we'll go ahead and we'll read through this very familiar parable. So Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I pointed out last week that Jesus was a great teacher. There were many titles that were ascribed to Jesus over the course of his ministry, but certainly one of the most popular was teacher. Uh, we even see that here in this particular parable. And behold, a lawyer stood up to him, and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus was regarded as a great teacher. And one of his teaching methods, one of his preferred teaching methods, was stories that portrayed a picture. Pictures that were very graphic and fired the imagination. Jesus used wonderful language when he taught. 
you can't help but just picture in your mind's eye the scene as it unfolds before you. Things like camels creeping through the eyes of needles. Uh, things like sowers going out into fields and sowing seed. And this story that we have before us here, the story of the Good Samaritan. We pointed out that parables are not allegories. They're not fables. They are simple stories drawn from real life, oftentimes set in some sort of an agrarian culture, in large measure because Jesus was living and operating in that kind of a context long before the Industrial Age. Stories that were designed to teach us, one, perhaps a few deep spiritual lessons, and stories that have an ability, perhaps more than any other part of Scripture, to strip through all the vines and the tendrils and get to the very heart of the matter. And that is exactly what we see happening here in this story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, this is a familiar story to us in much the same way that we have other familiar stories. We're all familiar with stories like The Boy Who Cried Wolf. We all know that story. Or the story of the emperor's new clothes. And right up there with those, of course, familiar to us all, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. These little stories that are designed to teach us moral lessons about how we should live. Stories about wisdom and folly. Simple stories, but maybe not so simplistic. I have to ask ourselves, is the story of the Good Samaritan just like all of those other stories? Just meant to teach us a moral lesson, or is it designed to do something much greater? I would submit to you that the story of the Good Samaritan is a familiar story, but it is not an obvious one. It is simple, but it is by no means simplistic. In fact, it appears to be very straightforward, but when you really begin to dig into it, as I did over the course of the past week, one of the things that becomes very apparent is that this is really one of the more difficult parables to, kind, to try and expound and explain. It's by no means simple or simplistic. And part of the problem has to do with the fact that what we have before us here in Luke chapter 10 is really, if you think about it, two stories. It's two stories, and furthermore, the two stories, at first glance, don't appear to go together. The first story seems to be about salvation. A lawyer stands up and puts Jesus to the test, asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So that's the first story. Jesus' encounter with this man. This man who is a lawyer who's been put up to put Jesus to the test by the Jewish religious leaders. The second story is Jesus' response to that query the parable of the Good Samaritan. But whereas the first story, Jesus' encounter with the lawyer, seems to have to do with eternal life, Jesus' response to the second story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, seems to have to do with God-honoring conduct. And so even though at first glance it appears to be a simple story, what you quickly realize is that it's actually multi-layered and it's far more complicated than we might think. Which means that if we are going to understand this parable, as we need to understand all of Jesus' teachings, we need to understand it in its context. Context is of the utmost importance when you read the Bible, or for that matter, anything. Let me tell you something. You can make the Bible say anything you want the Bible to say if you are willing to take a text and lift it out of context. I think I told you the story of when my wife was pregnant with our first child. And um, she put on a lot of weight, of course, as women do when they're pregnant, and 
And when he was born, he weighed over nine pounds. In fact, we never had a single child under nine pounds. Not a single one, and she delivered them all naturally. I'll tell you, that's a woman. Let me tell you, she, <laughs> she is something else. At any rate, this was the first child, and she was very, yes, great with child, that's right. And um, she was very sensitive. And I remember we were in North Charleston, for whatever reason, at the mall, probably purchasing all these things that you needed for the nursery and so forth. At that time, we lived in a one-bedroom apartment. What nursery? I mean, the nursery was a corner of our room where she made me put up baby border, which the first time it got humid outside fell down, and, uh, which is enough to make a preacher cuss, incidentally. But at any rate, we were at the mall, and we were looking for all this stuff, and we were in the Disney store. And there was this young woman that came by walking in front of me. And Kristen said, I saw you looking at her. And I said, I was not looking at her. She said, I saw you looking at her. And she said, remember what the Bible said. I said, what did the Bible say? She said, if your eye offends me, I will pluck it out. I said, that is not what the Bible said. She said, well, that's the way it's going to be. So, Context is of the utmost importance. The Bible does say something like that, but it wasn't quite the same. Context is very important. And if we are to understand this parable, we need to understand the context. So let's go back and let's take a look at it in closer detail. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Jesus told this parable in response. Now, there were many people that were listening, but Jesus told this story in response to a question that was put to him. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, presumably, the lawyer that we're talking about here is somebody who is either a Pharisee or somebody who works for the Pharisees. They were the experts in the Jewish law. And when I say the Jewish law, of course, I'm referring to the Old Testament. So this is really a combination of a lawyer and a theologian, which let me tell you is a very dangerous combination, to say the least. (laughs) And you'll notice that he came to Jesus to put him to the what? To the test. So the first thing you need to understand is that this is not an honest question. He is not coming here seeking any kind of wisdom from Jesus, who is acknowledged as a great teacher. Instead, he is coming to Jesus for the purpose of discrediting him. The scribes and the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, were extremely jealous of Jesus. We're told that when the Lord taught, he did not teach like the scribes and the Pharisees. He taught as one having authority. But here was the problem. Jesus had no authority in their eyes. He had never been to any of the rabbinical academies. He had never been formally licensed to preach by the Sanhedrin. And yet when he stood up and opened his mouth, it was like E.F. Hutton. People listened. Huge crowds of people flocked to hear Jesus. And as we pointed out last week, they listened with delight. Do not have this picture in your mind of Jesus sort of sitting there, very pious and meek. Jesus was a dynamic teacher. Somebody told me this week 
that in order to be a teacher, you have to have a little bit of the actor in you. Well, here I am. <laughs> I suspect that Jesus had a little bit of that in him as well. Listen to the stories that he told. They grabbed your attention. They caught your imagination. And that is exactly what drew the people in. They were excited by Jesus, and they were not excited by the scribes and the Pharisees who laid up all of these heavy burdens on them that they could not carry. And yet that made the Pharisees and the scribes jealous. And so at this point in Jesus' ministry, his fame and his popularity is so great that they want to do everything in their power to discredit him. Now, we're early on in the story, so for the most part, all they really want to do is discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people. Before long, when they discover that they can't do that, they'll do everything in their power to destroy him completely. But at this point, they want to discredit him. And so they bring in an expert in the law who's going to pose a question which he thinks Jesus will have a difficult time answering. Now, this was not the first time that this sort of thing had taken place, nor would it be the last. On one occasion, they came up to Jesus and they asked the question, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? No matter how the Lord was going to answer that question, they thought that he would be unpopular, at least in the sight of half the people. If on the one hand he said, it is right to pay taxes to Caesar, we're supposed to be law-abiding citizens, then the Jews who absolutely despised the Romans would have said, well, he's no friend of Abraham. On the other hand, if he said, no, it is not right to pay taxes to Caesar, to that pagan polytheistic empire, then they would have said, ah, we got you. Now we're going to tell the Roman authorities, and they will be rid of you once and for all. But of course, it's a very dangerous thing to play chicken with Jesus. Because what happened? Well, Jesus would say things like, well, that's a good question. Anybody got a coin? Somebody would dig into their pocket and pull out a coin, and he would say, now, whose face is on that? And they would say, well, Caesar's. He goes, well, it's Caesar's face, it's Caesar's coin, give it to Caesar. But you give to God what belongs to God. In other words, the coin is stamped with Caesar's image, well, then give it to Caesar. But you have been made in the image of God, therefore render to God what belongs to God. And the text goes on to say they dare not ask him any more questions. <laughs> they found themselves, in the words of William Shakespeare, hoist on their own petard. But they never gave up. And so this lawyer comes to Jesus with a question. Tell me, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I want you to understand it's not a genuine question in the sense it's not coming from a genuine desire to get an answer. But it is nevertheless an important question. In fact, I would submit to you this morning, it is the most important question that any soul can ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why is that the most important question that anybody can ask? I'll tell you why. Because none of us, ladies and gentlemen, is getting out of here alive. Sooner or later, we all have an inevitable appointment with the grave. And yet there is something within us as human beings that wells up, that shouts out, this is not the way it was supposed to be. 
You remember the story of the death of Lazarus and Jesus went to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead? How many of you remember that story? It's a familiar story. It's one of the texts assigned to be read at funerals in the church. And you know the story. Mary and Martha's brother had become ill. They were friends of Jesus, and so they sent word to the Lord to come and heal their brother, as he had done on so many other occasions, healing people. But we're told Jesus lingered where he was for two more days, and the result was that Lazarus died. And then Jesus said to his disciples, let's go to Bethany, for our brother Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they said, well, if he's fallen asleep, he probably needs it. He's been sick. He'll probably recover. And Jesus said, no, you don't understand. He's dead. He's dead. And so what did Jesus do? Well, he went to Bethany, as we all know, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. But do you notice that when he got there and he raised Lazarus from the dead, before he actually did that, even though he went there to Bethany for that purpose, the whole reason he lingered for two days where he was was so that Lazarus would die. When he got there, he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But did you ever notice that when Jesus arrived at the tomb itself and he saw the people weeping, we're told he wept? A little bit of trivia for you. It's the shortest verse in the entire Bible. Two words, Jesus wept. Now here's my question to you. Why did he weep? If this was all part of the plan, if he had lingered where he was so that Lazarus would die, if he went to Bethany for the whole purpose of raising him from the dead, if he was going to turn all of that sorrow, all of that grief into joy and ecstasy in just a moment, why did Jesus weep? Now some people say, well, he wept because he saw the sorrow of the people there. And certainly that is a part of it. But I think it's more than that. I think Jesus wept at Bethany because he knew this was not the way it was supposed to be. And even if he were to raise Lazarus from the dead, this was a scene that was going to be repeated millions of times over in millions of homes over the course of countless centuries. And how many of us have lost loved ones and have grieved as a consequence? And Jesus knew he wasn't going to be there physically to raise every single person from the dead. He knew this was not what God had intended. And there is something within all of us that rises up and says, this is not right. I pointed out on Easter that animals don't seem to be troubled by the prospect of their own demise. Dogs don't seem to worry about dying. Most dogs just bark at me, i got to tell you. <laughs> but they don't seem to be troubled by that. But human beings do. We fight against it with everything that we have. How did the poet Dylan Thomas say it? He said, do not go quietly into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And folks, we do. And so the lawyer may not have been asking a sincere question, but it was nevertheless an important question. The most important question, and unfortunately a question that is rarely asked these days. In our culture today, we are asking all kinds of questions, other questions, questions like, what must I do to succeed? Everybody wants to know what they need to do in order to be successful. People are asking questions, what must I do in order to get people to like me? My goodness, I'm dealing with a preteen girl at my house. And that's one of the anxieties that she has as she heads back to school. Are they going to like me this year? 
What must I do to be fulfilled? So many people out there in the world today looking for fulfillment, looking for joy, looking for contentment. Go to Barnes & Noble sometime. I, I, I get nervous about Amazon. I'm afraid that Amazon is going to put bookstores out of business someday. And I love to just go to a bookstore and peruse, just browse, do nothing else but look at the titles, pull a book off the shelf, begin to read the back cover, or the, the inside cover, just get a sense of what it's all about. I love to do that. It's one of the most relaxing things in the world for me. Well, go to Barnes & Noble sometime and look at the books of the bestsellers and look at what they're about. You'll see books like Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. My gosh, that book was published decades ago. And I don't know how many printings it has gone through. The only book you need to lead you to what? Success. Daniel Gilbert's book, national bestseller, Stumbling on Happiness. Isn't that what we want? It's ingrained in us as American people. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. I have a right to that. What do I have to do in order to be successful? What do I have to do in order to be happy? What do I have to do in order to be fulfilled? The seven habits of highly effective people. Powerful lessons in personal change. Boy, I'll bet that's a real great book to sit down and read right before you go to bed. Those kinds of books make me feel miserable because it just makes me realize how, fall, how I fall short of the mark. All these books trying to answer all of these questions, but nobody seems today to be answering the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We don't like to think about death. We do everything in our power to avoid thinking about it, but sooner or later, my friends, we're going to have to face up to that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It may not have been a sincere question, but let me tell you, it was the most important question. Why is it neglected today? Again, if you don't understand this background, you'll never understand Jesus' response and this parable. Why is this question neglected today? Well, when you ask the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, or to put it in language that we would be more familiar with today, what must I do to be saved? Part of the problem is that it implies that there is something that is threatening us. It implies that there is something from which we need to be delivered. It implies that there is something that is imperiling us. And what does the Bible say is imperiling us more than anything else? Sin. For it's the wages of sin which are death. But let me tell you something. Sin is not a fashionable topic. Not even in the church today. In 1979, there was a national prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C. Anybody remember who was the president in 1979? Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter. It was basically the last year of his administration. He would be replaced by Ronald Reagan in 1980. And it was the National Prayer Breakfast. And the main speaker for the National Prayer Breakfast was Bishop Fulton J. Sheen. Anybody remember him, the Roman Catholic bishop that used to appear on television from time to time and very popular and in many respects a very good teacher. And he stood up in his full regalia, all of his vestments as a Roman Catholic bishop, auxiliary bishop of New York and bishop of Rochester, and he stood up and he said, 
Good morning, Mr. President. Good morning, Mrs. Carter. Good morning, all you fellow sinners. And everybody was stunned. Because here he was, a Roman Catholic bishop, saying very clearly, Mr. President, you are a sinner. And then he went on to explain that the unfortunate thing was that sin had fallen out of fashion. And his whole argument was, if this was a national prayer breakfast, then among other things, we should be praying for the nation, but we should also, he said, be praying for the forgiveness of our sins. Our corporate sins as a country, our individual sins as citizens. And he went on to say a number of things that I think are really pertinent to this discussion this morning. The first thing he said is that sin has fallen out of fashion. And he went on to explain why. He said it is because the clergy have dropped sin from their preaching. Lest, he said, they offend their congregations. Now he was not just talking about the Roman Catholic Church. He was talking about all denominations. The clergy no longer want to talk about sin because what? It offends the sinner. He said, but we all recognize that there is something wrong in human beings. There is a deep fault line that runs through every single one of us. And so when the clergy dropped sin, the judicial system picked it up. But they translated it. Sin suddenly became crime. Then psychiatrists picked up crime, and they translated it into a complex and the culture basically took sin and made it into a mistake. And then he said something I thought was just hilarious. I wasn't there, of course, but I read it. He said, there used to be a time when we Roman Catholics were the only ones who believed in the immaculate conception of Mary. The idea that Mary was born without sin. He said, now it seems in American culture, we are all immaculately conceived. And that's why we don't ask the question anymore, ladies and gentlemen. But it is an important question. And it deserves an answer. So what did Jesus say to the lawyer's question? Even though he knew it wasn't sincere... He nevertheless recognized it as an important question, the most important question. How did John Wesley put it? He said, I want to know one thing. I want to know the way to heaven. I want to know how to land safe on that happy shore. How many of you want to know the way to heaven? How many of you want to know when your time comes the way to go to be with God? That's the question that the lawyer was asking. Maybe not from a sincere heart, but it was an important question, and it deserved and answer. So how did Jesus reply? But teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus returned with a question of his own. Verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And so Jesus is saying, hey, look, you're the legal expert here. You're the lawyer. You tell me, what does the law say? We're Jews here. The law is from the Lord. What does the law say? That's what happens. Jesus answers the lawyer's question with a question. Now, I don't think that that was simply to ignore the question or 
to obfuscate in any way. I think what Jesus was trying to do was to draw out from the man the answer that the man knew deep within his own heart. You know, oftentimes teachers, when they're up in front of a crowd, can recognize that there is a student who knows the answer. He doesn't realize he knows the answer, but he does. And so to instill confidence and courage, the teacher will draw the answer out. And I think that's exactly what Jesus was doing here. And so he turns the question back on the lawyer, and he says, you tell me, what does the law say? And what does the lawyer answer? Verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what I love about that is that he gives the right answer. That is exactly what the book of Deuteronomy says. Do this, the book of Deuteronomy says, and you shall live. Incidentally, it is precisely the same answer that Jesus himself gave on another occasion. He said, the greatest of the commandments is what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We call that the what? The summary of the law. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. So in this first part, this first story of two stories, the question is asked, an important question. Jesus asks the man what the law says, and he responds, the law says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, all your mind, and your neighbors yourself. And Jesus said, what? You have answered correctly, do this and you will live. And what happened? At that point, the lawyer, the man who stood on the law, found himself convicted by the very law that he was sworn to uphold. How was he convicted? Well, let me ask you a question. How many of you, if that's what you need to do in order to live, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Let me ask you a question. How many of you are on your way to eternal life? Anybody out there? Are you? You love the Lord your God with all your hearts, all your mind, all your strength. You love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, or is it not going to the right place? You think this is hot? You ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> the lawyer felt convicted by his own answer. How do we know that? We know that by his response. Look at verse 29. But he, desiring to what? Justify himself. What does it mean to be justified? It means to be lined up with God, doesn't it? That's what it means to be justified. But he desiring to what? Justify himself. He's not looking to somebody else to justify him. He's been shamed. His own answer has revealed a critical fault in his own character. And so in an effort to justify himself, what does he do? He turns to Jesus and he says, and who is my neighbor? Now, what I find interesting is that he completely ignores the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your height, all your mind, and all your strength, and he quibbles over the second one. And who 
is my neighbor. See, what he's basically saying is, okay, Jesus, you're pretty good at this for a carpenter's son. But I'm a lawyer, and I'm an expert in words, and I hear what you're saying, and I get it, and I realize that I'm by no means perfect. But in order for me to get to the standard which you have set, I've got to know who is my neighbor. If I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, who exactly is my neighbor? And here's how the Lord replies. He tells this story. There was a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Those of you who have been to the Holy Land, this is one of the places that we stopped and visited. How many of you saw this when we went to the Holy Land? You remember it. It's called the Wadi Kelt. It is a deep canyon, and that is St. George's Monastery there. The canyon is so deep that the sun only hits it at noon, the bottom of it. It is a dark and it is a treacherous place, but that is where you had to travel on your way from Jerusalem down to Jericho, to the south. And every person who heard Jesus' story knew that image. They knew that picture. It's called the Valley of the Shadow of Death, Psalm 23. It's called the Bloody Way. And you oftentimes fell among robbers and thieves. The next time we go to the Holy Land, those of you who have never been, you want to go, we'll take you to the Wadi Kelt and you can actually see it. That was the image. And Jesus said there was a man who was going down from Jerusalem, presumably a Jew, to Jericho when he met, fell among thieves and robbers. And they took him. And they attacked him and they beat him and they stripped him and they left him naked and dying by the side of the road. And lo and behold, along came a priest who when he saw the man, passed by on the other side. And there came another man, and this man was a Levite, also of the priestly class, who assisted in the temple. And when he saw the man, lo and behold, he passed by on the other side. But he said, before long there came a third man, and the third man was a Samaritan. And when he saw the man, the Jewish man, beaten, bloodied, naked by the side of the road, he stepped down and he helped him. He poured oil on his wounds, put him on his own animal, took him to an inn, and paid for his care. Jesus said, remember, this man was a Samaritan. This was Jesus' response to the question, who is my neighbor? Now, what I want you to notice is what Jesus did here. And this is why I say this parable may seem simple, it may seem straightforward, but it is by no means simplistic. Jesus does something rather remarkable when he tells this story and then turns to the lawyer and says, now tell me, which do you suppose was neighbor to the wounded man? And the lawyer replies, I suppose the one who showed him mercy. What has Jesus done in this story? He switched it around. To the lawyer, the neighbor was nothing but an object. He was the object of the question. And who is my neighbor? And when I say he was the object, I mean he was something out there, something theoretical. 
I suspect that if there had been a story in the Old Testament that said if you find a man who's been beaten by the side of the road, you have an obligation to go and dress his wounds and care for him. There was no story exactly like that in the Old Testament. And there's a good reason why there was no story exactly like that in the Old Testament. Because if there had been a story just like that in the Old Testament, I suspect the lawyer would have done it. If there had been a story like that, Jesus would have told a different story in which a priest did stop and care for the man, or the Levite did stop and care for the man. But because they were so concerned with the exact letter of the law, if the man had not been lying on the side of the road, but in the center of the road, they probably would have passed by. Only wanting to follow the letter of the law. And so what you find in the Bible are not exact descriptions of what we're supposed to do, but rather what is laid out for us are grand principles. To this man, the neighbor was an object. To Jesus, this man was the subject. The question was not what he thought it was. The real question is not, who is my neighbor? Jesus was saying the real question is, who is the one who acts neighborly? Or to put it another way, the question is not, whom shall I love? Because, Lord, if you tell me who my neighbor is, then I'll love that person. I'll care for that person. The question is not, whom shall I love? The question is, whom do you love? That's what Jesus was saying. He's saying the neighbor is not an object out there. The neighbor is the subject. The question is not who is the person you ought to be neighborly to. The question is, are you being neighborly? Which one do you suppose, Jesus said, was neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, rather reluctantly, I suspect, I suppose the one who showed him mercy. What does this teach us? It teaches us, at bare minimum, that with Jesus there are no excuses. There are no excuses not to follow hard after the cross. There are no excuses in this life not to show mercy even to our enemies. It is very difficult. And that's one of the reasons why I say the parables, more than any other portion of Scripture, cut right through to the heart of the matter. This is a parable not just about Christian conduct. This is a parable, like the parable we looked at last week, the parable of the four soils, about the human heart. It's very easy if Jesus was saying, that's your neighbor, to say, oh, well, I can love that person. It's another thing when Jesus said, the whole world is your neighbor. Are you being neighborly? Ryan's preaching a sermon this morning, and he tells a story. Listen to it closely. It's a story about a homeless man that he met when he was living in Colombia. And the way he described the man, I could picture it in my mind's eye. And I have to admit, as he described it, my stomach turned a little bit. But Ryan talked about how he got to know this man. And as I sat there listening to Ryan speak this morning, I felt convicted in my own heart because I realized Ryan was a better neighbor to that sort of man than I was. He understood what Jesus was talking about here. It's not as though Debose is my neighbor. It's easy to love Debose. Well, Nancy may not think so, but most of the time it's, it's easy. 
He's an upstanding, respectable man, a God-fearing man. But what about those who are not so much? It's not so easy to be neighborly to them, and yet that's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, the question is, not whom shall I love, but whom do you love? The priest and the Levite had excuses to pass by on the other side. This was dangerous territory, of course, and there was also the fear of ritual defilement. They, had, they were on their way where? Presumably to Jerusalem. And if they touched a man who had been bleeding or a dead body, they would have had to gone through an elaborate rite of purification. So they had a good excuse to pass by on the other side. If they stopped and helped this man, they themselves might have become a victim. And furthermore, they didn't want to become unclean. But let me tell you something. While they had good excuses to pass by on the other side, the Samaritan in Jesus' story had more excuses. Better excuses to pass by on the other side. First of all, this man who was lying in the road was a Jew, and he was a Samaritan. And the Samaritans were despised by the Jews. Centuries before, when the northern kingdom had been carried off into Babylon, a few people were left in the land. And those few Jews that were left in the land eventually intermingled with the pagan people who came in and took up possession. And so their children became half-breeds, and they were despised by the Jews. As much as the Jews hated the Romans, they hated the Samaritans anymore. If you had to pass from Judea in the south near Jerusalem to Galilee in the north, the most direct route was to go right through the swath of land in the center called Samaria. But most Jews would pass over and take the longer, more dangerous Transjordan route rather than step foot on Samaritan territory. It was an intense rivalry. When I was growing up, the big rival was between the Dallas Cowboys and the Pittsburgh Steelers. That was nothing compared to this. The Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans were treated shamefully by the Jews. This man, no doubt, was himself a victim of tremendous prejudice by the Jews who considered them unclean. And furthermore, to help this man would have been personally inconvenient. You know, sometimes it is inconvenient. How many times we see an accident on the side of the road and we, we, we just sort of keep on driving because what? We're, we're in a hurry to get someplace. It was inconvenient for this man. But here's what's so powerful. Not pride, not prejudice, not personal inconvenience, or anything else got in the way of this man's mercy. Not pride, not prejudice, not personal inconvenience or anything else got in the way of this man's mercy. And Jesus was showing when all is said and done, it comes down, as we said last week, to a matter of the heart. With all of Jesus' parables, my friends, we are supposed to find ourselves in it. Last week when we talked about the parable of the four soils, I asked you the question, what kind of a heart do you have? Is your heart that hard path that when the Word of God comes out, it just glances off because you've been living a life of sin? Is your heart like that soil that is rocky soil? It doesn't have much depth. And when the Word of God is preached, there is that initial excitement, but the minute you begin to face difficulty or privation or suffering for the sake of the gospel, your faith withers and dies. Are you that gospel heart that when the message is preached, 
Your heart is strangled out by the cares and the occupations and the desires of this life, the desire for wealth and pleasure. Or is your heart like that good soil that when the word of God is preached, takes root and it produces fruit, sometimes 30, sometimes 60, sometimes 100 fold. We said you have to figure out which kind of heart you have. That's what Jesus wants us to do. And let me tell you, Jesus wants us to put ourselves in this story and ask ourselves, who are we in this story? That's what he was doing to the lawyer. He was saying, tell me, who are you in this story? That's what's so challenging about it. Who are you in this story? Are you the priest? And when you see a need in the world, a desperate need, you pass by on the other side because it's just inconvenient. I've got other things, another agenda. Are you like the Levite? You see somebody in need, but you pass by on the other side because I just don't want to be associated with that type of person. Or are you like the Samaritan? You may not like that person. You may not care for that person. That person may be nothing like you, but you have mercy. Who are you in this story? Well, I want to suggest to you that if the truth be known, we're none of those people. Now, there are times in our life when we're like the priest and the Levite. There are times in our life when we're like the Samaritan. But Jesus is not simply concerned with times in our life. He's concerned with the attitudes of our hearts. So if I'm saying we're not the priest, we're not the Levite, we're not the Samaritan, then what character's left in this story? The victim. The man who's been beaten and left for dead, helpless, in a hopeless situation, unless somebody Somebody comes along who doesn't have to and has mercy on us. And who is that person? That person is Jesus himself. You see, we are the ones who are beaten and hopeless and helpless because of sin in our lives. How many of us love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength? How many of us love our neighbors ourselves? The very things I want to do, I do not do, and the very things I hate, these are the things that I do. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? How many of you can relate to Paul's words there? If you can, you are that broken, helpless victim on the road. And there is no one in this world who's going to stoop down and help you. But there is one who has no obligation to do so. Who was actually treated shamefully. He came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. Walter Russell Bowie wrote a wonderful hymn, Lord Christ, when first thou camest to earth, upon a cross they bound thee, and they mock thy saving kingship then with thorns with which they crown thee. And still our wrongs may weave thee now, new thorns to pierce that steady brow and robe of sorrow placed round thee. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? My friends, we were all there. 
And here we are, hopeless and helpless in the world, beaten by the side of the road, accosted by the devil and sin, the world and the flesh, and there comes one along the way. And he stoops down, and at great personal cost, lifts us up and pays the price for our salvation. And when all of a sudden you realize, ah, that's who I am in this story. And that's who the real good Samaritan is. Then all of a sudden a transformation takes place in your heart. And you realize that because you were not beyond the pale, neither is anyone else. A simple story, maybe. A simplistic story, not a chance. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that the true Good Samaritan came down from heaven and walked among us and picked us up, bruised, broken, dying people. He rescued the perishing. And he now commands us to go and do likewise. Grant us the grace, Lord, to see ourselves in this story as the wounded man, to see Jesus as the true good Samaritan, and so transform our hearts and our minds and our spirits that we may see in others not people who are worthless or unworthy, but people who are so precious in your sight that you died for them. Grant us the grace to follow in Jesus' footsteps. Grant us the grace, as this Samaritan did, to go and do likewise. It's in Jesus' name we pray.